Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us, and feel free to leave us feedback. My guest today is Gary Coover, COO of Superlayer. Gary started his career as a consultant before going to get his MBA and co-founding a D2C startup. Eventually, he ended up in Korea at Samsung, tasked with building some of Samsung's innovation arm called Samsung X. After helping scale for eight years, he was bitten by the Web3 bug when he noticed the momentum it was gaining. He joined Kevin Chu and Mahesh Falanki as COO of Superlayer, a venture studio dedicated to Web3 startups. We discuss many of Gary's learnings from Fortune 100 to Startup Venture Studio, including the difference between cats and kittens and the importance of having a strong shit umbrella. LFG, baby, let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you. This has been uh, uh, an anticipated episode for me. I have really enjoyed our conversation so far. I'm really excited to hear more about what you guys are doing over at Superlayer. Likewise. Let's dig in. Yeah. So I always start this uh, interview the same way. I like my audience to get to know my guests, get to know what makes them tick. So we're going to start with your founding story. Feel free to uh, start wherever you like. Sure. Um, Hopefully this is somewhat helpful for the many folks out there that are crypto curious, but don't know their path in. Cause that was certainly, you know, that was certainly my experience. I started out as a, a generalist generalist and you know, what do you do when you don't know what you want to do? Consulting. What do consultants <laughs> do when they don't know what they want to do? They go get an MBA. And so, you know, that was my original path along the way. I had certainly had a fascination with business models, but not really a, you know, clear place of where I wanted to apply it. Um, got my first taste of startups in B school, co-founded a D2C uh, startup at the time. And um, that was really like, oh, tech's interesting. Uh, and startups are really interesting. It's just the best way to apply any learnings. Um, and from there, got an interesting opportunity to work with Samsung. Really wanted to go kind of see the inner workings of a large tech company. Moved to Korea with Samsung. And the big break I got was Samsung hired this uh, ex-YouTube and AOL exec, David Un, to come in and basically help Samsung figure it out and whatever it out was to be decided by by David. And so I joined as a second or third employee and spent the next eight years basically helping build out the software innovation ecosystem for Samsung. It's a group called Samsung Next. Um, and really, it was kind of the, it was like right when uh, everyone was sharing the article, The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, <laughs> And it was like, wow, we're a hardware behemoth. Seems like software is going to be a thing. We should figure this out. Um, so for me, that meant kind of gallivanting around the world, launching venture studios, venture capital arms, uh, M&A capability, partnership, really leveraging kind of the, the beast of Samsung uh, to bring that to startup ecosystems. First in the Bay Area, where I'm from, then New York, Tel Aviv, Berlin. Um, and in 20, I think it was early 2021, I picked up my head and realized that a few things were happening. Kind of one, the crypto space had blown up in many ways, but also I think from a timing standpoint, the kind of the toolkit that I had spent years helping build out for Samsung was suddenly being applied in the crypto ecosystem, which is at that point, all the L1s were getting massive funding and they were all launching labs. Uh, kind of, I'd say consensus was the first among, uh, amongst that much earlier. And then all of a sudden you saw the same with 
Polygon and Solana and a lot of the other uh, near a lot of the other competitors. And I realized that this, what felt innovative back in 2013 and kind of the web two land all of a sudden was being newly applied of how do you basically deploy these massive treasuries to attract what is the limiting resource in crypto, which is devs. How do you deploy it to bring devs to build on your blockchain? Um, so once I had the aha moment that this skill set I had that I thought didn't apply, perfectly applied, uh, I was unfortunate to get introduced to, to Kevin Chu, Mahesh Falanki, who had successfully built Kabam back in the day, and then more recently, uh, Forte, Rally, Genji. Um, and they were like a lot of founders. I'm not sure that uh, people know a lot about venture studios, but they all have a similar, or most of them have a similar founding story, which is successful founders love kittens and don't love cats. And so they want to spend all day working with startup kittens. And at the time when they grow into 50 persons, startup cats, they want to go back to playing with kittens. Um, I should say, don't quote me on this, but I guess I'm literally being quoted on this. Um, <laughs> I'm and, thinking title of episode already. So, <laughs> and so they, you know, they came with a ton of passion for building, had learned so much from the, the creation of Forte and rally and seeing a ton of space. And, we teamed up to build what's become Superlayer, which is a, a Web3 venture studio really focused on consumer Web3. Uh, so my role is uh, COO of, of Superlayer, which really means wearing two hats. One is, you know, venture studio is part fund. Um, so, you know, raising money from LPs, uh, ensuring great returns. But the more, you know, the more relevant, interesting part is work. We actually co-found and build companies in-house. And so I play the interim COO role across all the companies that we build, which is definitely the, you know, the most challenging part of it, uh, but also the most rewarding part of the role. Yeah, that's a very interesting start. It's kind of, it, I love the serendipity that, that felt that you fell into and you were able to kind of take that skill set and transfer it over to web three. Um, what I, I know you saw the, the momentum in web three mm -hmm. and, and that was interesting to you. What other aspects of the technology or the industry made you want to make that jump? Because I imagine your your job at Samsung was was going really well. So, like, what what made you want to change pace there? Yeah, I mean, and I think you're pointing out pace is a great word to describe the difference between you know larger corporate and startups. Just the sprinting speed and working with startups as it's you know part of the stereotype. It is absolutely true. Um, I think for me the the big the big kind of realization um, and, and the and the desire, what re really sparked the desire for change was within most large companies, the innovation arm is, in some cases, it's revered as like, okay, this is where the new opportunity is going to come from. But oftentimes within the parent company, it's looked at as almost like anti-disruption insurance. Like hey, in Samsung, we've got a great, you know, it's a massive company. It's, you know, incredible the success it's had, basically lifting up an entire country, South Korea, with its success. Um, and so the innovation arm in many ways is to keep the hardware machine flowing and making sure that some upstart competitor doesn't disrupt that, especially outside of the core hardware space. Um, but any disruption insurance is not quite as fun. Uh, and so it's, you know, there's the, the old analogy of like, are you the, the, the pirates or the Navy? Um, and what, the more I kind of learned about, we weren't calling it Web3 at the time, the more, the more I learned about the crypto space was it became clear it was just this major opportunity for a business model innovation. And, it, and when I combine that with, oh, these, these you know, L1s, L2s, et cetera, are, are building out these arms to, um, in, in this arms race, basically, to, to, to better their, their blockchains, there, I realized there's an opportunity all of a sudden to switch sides um, and to go from worrying about how do we fend off people who are actively trying to eat our lunch every day to being the disruptor out there actively trying to eat lunch. Um, <laughs> and I think with uh, having done the bigger company thing for years, it was really just the right time to take a jump. And, and it felt like the technology or the business model itself was at a, not that it was proven, but it was, gaining widespread enough adoption for it to be worth taking the leap on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. The I, now, now another title is coming to mind. There's no such thing as free lunch. Um, that's right. That's right. 
<laughs> but you know, one of the things that you hit on uh, during this is is that very interesting skill set of how you have to when in tech when you want to disrupt. Uh, it is to your benefit to figure out how to grow your ecosystem of developers. It's something I felt on the local level, uh, having taken part in the Atlanta Blockchain Center and seeing uh, these various you know, outreach groups from Chainlink and Polygon here, trying to just build developer interest and hosting all kinds of hackathons. But you were able, you were having to do that from a, I guess, more, is that, is, was it a, I guess the better question is, was it a similar environment to that or was it more structured because it was Samsung? Um, was there actual like office space where you were hosting these people or was it, you know, you going around to these cities, having meetups, drumming up interest in Samsung and building for Samsung and then developing pipeline for their kind of labs side of the business? I mean, over the eight years I was there helping build out Samsung Max from a couple of people up to a couple hundred I mean, we threw every tool at the in the tool chest at the problem, right? And it's it's interesting. Um, <laughs> you mentioned office space. That was a tool that in 2014 was literally almost enough to attract great startups to come in and work with you. So we had we had a few programs where we would like a, basically a venture studio model or an accelerator where we would uh, provide funding. Some sometimes we did this in house where we would bring. Uh, builders in, they build products that Samsung may or may not acquire. Uh, other times we did that for the, our venture capital arm. Um, and that the lure of space of which Samsung had a lot of and all the areas that we were was a great starting point, right? Uh, you could be around uh, deeply experienced people. You could be in an attractive space, um, you know, access kind of all of the resources that Samsung had. That was huge. Then COVID hits. And nobody cares about office space anymore. Um, and so you really have to start reimagining your model. Um, and I, I think what what kind of changes within the kind of the, the parent company is where are they where are they focused, right? Like how do you and how do you define success? And that was something that I, that frequently changed a lot. Is it a is the goal of an innovation arm or you know these venture studios? Is it to in a sense supply the legacy business? Right, Samsung makes phones. We could use apps. Is this a way to identify, you know, new apps ahead of the market, or is this a way to identify leading businesses? So even in the, um, you know, Samsung Next was a early kind of investor in uh, in crypto and Web three, um, and is this a way to actually get in early and help the broader business architect a strategy that drives the business in a different direction? I'd say the former is much easier to be a supplier, the latter is much more exciting and interesting and difficult. Uh, and that's ultimately the path that we chose, uh, but it's a much more volatile path because you still need the company to buy in. Yeah, it sounds like you'd have to convince a lot more people because you're changing the strategy of the company in a fundamental way. Yeah, I, I, I've given a lot of kind of talks and talked with a lot of companies that are considering launching innovation arms. And one of the, I, I probably have a, you know, 10 rules of things to do or not do, mostly not do, uh, if you want to launch a successful corporate innovation arm. And what uh, what I, are I would they? say, <laughs> I'd say the, one of the number, like probably the number one requirement is you need a massive shit umbrella. And by that, I mean, oftentimes, you know, we all get caught up and this is, you know, corporate innovation, that's exciting. Or venture capital, we want, like, who doesn't want to have a venture capital arm somewhere under their fiefdom and a large company it sounds amazing, um, but when push comes to shove, I mean that's you're you're doing that. Ultimately, you don't see financial returns for I mean ten year funds, right? Um, yeah. And so if you see corporate like strategic value, maybe that's more like four to six years. Nothing of that aligns with the timeline of a larger company, and so you need somebody with the gravitas and the trust that's going to be around long enough. And so typically, it's not like some hotshot VP brought into guide innovation. Like it's the, you know, it's the number one or the number two person who can make this happen and can frankly put up with all, with all of the short term, like, Hey, we have a lot of promises. We've delivered nothing in the, in the interim, but trust us that it's coming down the road. Or take out your shit umbrella. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's it. A lot of people's umbrella just isn't big enough. And, and, Like for us to function as a team, we needed, uh, in our case, David on 
to be the the shit umbrella when when shit came raining down from the top um, to be able to shield us to be able to do what we thought was best for the ecosystem that was not what was best for Samsung. That's interesting. So you've got competing interests, uh, but in the short term, uh, however, in the long term, um, the idea is that those interests would align to create a, a bigger, better business. Um, That's right. So let's let's fast forward to Superlayer. Um, I am uh, reasonably familiar with venture studios versus mm-hmm. traditional venture capitalists. I've had a few VCs on the show. I'm a strategic advisor for a nonprofit venture studio myself. Um, what, how do the two compare in your mind? Um, is there, I mean, other than, you know, the obvious, what, what are the major differences and what are the big value adds, especially at Superlayer? Yeah, well, let's, let's start with the difference between venture studios, venture capital arms, and let's even go in and throw in like incubators and accelerators. Um, and so if you compare them across, you know, the, you have your two by two, one would be probably dollars deployed or dollars available uh, funding. And the other would be uh, value provided. And on the um, VCs typically, and again, this is more stereotypically, we'll just say yeah, higher on the dollars on the funding provided, lower on the on the value provided, right? I mean, there's introductions, relationships. There are some firms out there like uh, First Round and others that really lean in hard on the platform angle and do that well. For the most part, it's more about the check. Um, and then in the incubator accelerator space, it's it's probably on the medium side in terms of help provided. A lot of them will, you know, like take YC, it's an amazing program. Um, you know, X amount of months of being in the cohort, um, amazing network, amazing brand, um, limited amount of dollars provided. The hope is that the brand and their you know, their utility will help ra- help you raise more money. And on the kind of extreme end is the venture studio, which is higher dollars provided in our case, you know, somewhere between one and a half to 3 million bucks up front on the project from the fund that we've raised. And then extremely high on the value add. And, and I say value add is, you know, again, it's, it's a loaded word because everyone's like, yeah, I, we provide value add. Um, I would say we, we come at a venture studio. Most of them come out of co-founding a company. So that when I'm putting my hat on and our process is we at Superlayer, our, our team of 15 comes up with a concept and we go out and find the most kick-ass domain expert in the space to co-found the company with and give them meaningful ownership of that company. Our folks at Superlayer who are, you know, I'm COO, I work with an amazing kind of the GNA team of uh, general counsel, CFO, head of talent, in addition to our more Web3 uh components of tokenomics strategy and all that um, chief product officer. Um, we bring all that and plug that in immediately and collectively start building a company. You just don't do that in an incubator or, or with a, with a VC. And I'd say that the trade-off across all of this um, is ownership. And mm-hmm. so that's probably like the third, now that we get to the impossibly complicated part of the uh, access, we had a third one in there. Uh, well, three D, folks, three D. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Model this for me um, is is really ownership, and so it's lowest in the accelerator. And what you're giving up is lowest in the incubator accelerator model, kind of medium in the VC model, and highest in the venture studio model. And so, what that means for venture studios and for founders considering venture studios is you have to be incredibly clear about the value you are delivering. And from a founder standpoint, you have to be really certain that it's the value that you need. And maybe that's maybe that's the jump off point to, to super layer and how we're how we're approaching it. Um, which is for for us, I, I think fundamentally, like a Web three companies are a great space for venture studios. Um, in part because building, in my opinion, building a Web three company is like building two companies. You're building, you know, for us, we're focused on consumer. So we, we're building social companies like uh, like a Web3 Twitter and Taki or Web3 OnlyFans and Hotline. Um, you have to build a successful, engaging product that users want to engage with, full stop. That didn't change. Alongside that, you then have to build the token um, and have that be additive to the product rather than a in some cases, completely disassociated from the success of the project. And in, in many cases, in addition, a distraction. 
Um, and so that is something that's really difficult to do for, you know, for founders coming in to be able to do all of that effectively, also to be able to see around corners with how fast this industry is moving. Um, so what I, what I mean by that is if you were to launch a uh, SaaS venture studio today, I think it's harder to differentiate and, and provide that clear value add than it would be in Web3 because the SaaS this business has been around for a lot longer. There's a lot more playbooks you can follow, a lot more experts in the space with real experience that can get you there, whereas that's far more rare in Web3. That's interesting. So it's because of this kind of theory of two businesses, which I totally agree with, I I, the, the, the tokenomics side of things, um, I think we're still figuring it out personally. Uh, yeah, 100%. It's, it's, it, it can vary so much and it's so easily, easily caught up in some sort of speculative idea, right? Um, so I guess how, how do you approach that side of it? Do you have, I assume you have people in house who have, are, I guess, as professional as you can be in tokenomics considering how young this is? Um, and then you're approaching it on a, on a, a case by case basis. I don't know if you want to give an example of you know, hotline or another one of your, your companies that you have in house, but it's fascinating to me how you think about that, because I think it, nobody's not many people have gotten it right. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that if, and if you said, Hey, this is, uh, something that's been figured out, I'd be like, great. When can you, <laughs> when can you need start? To team up? Yeah. When can you start? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think we learned a lot and I think collectively the space learned a lot in 2022. Um, and it's probably easy to look back and say that the lessons should have been obvious. Um, but I, I think in new spaces, you know, that's, the, there's a lot of excitement and, and, and speculation that comes in it. And the, from when the kind of, even when the phrase web three started being bandied about, um, the, the primary token models were basically we're going to give out a lot of tokens as a way to incentivize user adoption and without being overly concerned about the downstream effects on that token and that economy. And frankly, for a ton of projects that worked really well. I mean, um, there were some that had more usage than others. I think more famously Axie Infinity, step in had really massive adoption. Um, but where that type of model um, tends to fizzle out is that it's very growth dependent um, for, you know, the, there's kind of the uh, the growth carousel. And when, when the music stops and the horses stop moving up and down, all of a sudden, then you see that token crash um, because there's nothing, um, there's nothing ensuring that those tokens stay valuable as soon as everyone wants off. And I think what we saw in the space is that there's a ton of shiny objects and you just can't, you, you can't always depend on being, uh, you know, the, the, the prettiest person at the dance. Um, there's always going to be something newer and shinier. Um, and so where we're really focused and this kind of goes to your, your question, where we're focused is building token models that are not, don't mirror kind of Ponzi nomics. And where we think that lies is really um, how do you bring in revenue uh, and use that revenue to offset any tokens emitted from a growth standpoint. Um, and the key to that, what we think, and especially in these social models is the original ethos of um, Web3, and this is probably where I'll drop an F-bomb, is a little bit like, hey, we've got our token and we've got our Discord, like, fuck the big brands, let's go. Right. And I think the probably the 2023 realization is, um, oh, actually, big brands can be incredibly useful for providing we value. Yeah. We actually need them to survive. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back, big brands. We, we went away from you. Oh, for by a the bit. way, the terms of that deal just changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so we look at that in terms of they, those can be advertisers, sponsors, affiliate marketing. Um, and, and let's, Yes, big brands want to, if you can provide real value and users on a platform, big brands want access to them. Um, and so specifically what we, what we think you can do is um, we have a product called Hotline, which is like a Web3 OnlyFans, um, is as users come on the platform, um, you can provide 
basically you can provide real value and ensure that like you're not overly providing growth incentives. And if you were, you can offset it with revenue, whether that's buying back the token so that even if that, even if that growth carousel stopped, let's say you got to a hundred thousand users transacting on the platform and then shut off new users. That's fine. As long as the users continue to interact with the product, you're not dependent on kind of passing the bag to the next person in that NFT that started with a floor price of a dollar and then rose to a thousand. Well, we, we need somebody to come in to pay 1100 for it, for it to make sense. Um, so that's really where we're heading, uh, as a, as a business. Uh, and as we think about how do we make sure, how do we set our projects up for success in 2023 going forward? It's really looking at, well, what types of businesses that are better done tokenized also have are compelling to larger brands. Interesting. That's hmm. so I guess this kind of begs my next question, which is what is the, the thesis here? I think we've heard a little bit about the way you think about web three businesses being two businesses and the, the emphasis on the importance of the tokenomics, uh, not reflecting Ponzi-nomics. What is the big thesis at Superlayer? Why, why are you raising so much money to help and, and providing so much value to help these web three businesses grow? I mean, I think the, probably the simplest example or the simplest answer is, Web, what, the way we think of Web3 is a redistribu redistribution of value from platform to users, right? So you take uh, an example like Twitter, which to date, I believe, is at zero revenue share. So every second tweet of Zach's has an ad against it, you see nothing of it. Um, from a user standpoint, every um, if I'm the 15th user uh, follower of you or the 15 millionth follower, there's no difference in it for me. Um, and so the fact that Twitter captures 100% of the value on the platform that is really created by the interaction between creators and users is bizarre. I mean, I think that's that's the way the that's the way the industry evolved. But that doesn't and, and web three is basically saying, it's not the way it has to be. Super layer exists, because it hasn't been done right yet. Right. And that we, there's, I think people agree with the broadly with the, with the promise of web three and can maybe philosophically align with the fact that, yeah, it maybe platforms don't need to keep a hundred percent of the value created. Um, and again, that, that changes from TikTok has, I think creator funds, which are still a pretty small percentage. Um, YouTube does some rev share, but it, it's, it's really not long tail. It's really aimed at the, the, the most successful creators. Um, but you know, the history of the internet is, is enabling the long tail. And so to date that hasn't been done well, super layer exists to facilitate that change and to help build the platforms that are going to provide the real examples of web three succeeding as business model innovation to create better experience for, you know, for creators and users. That makes a lot of sense. It, it really begs, I'm not sure if we've discussed this off air or not, but like one of my big questions for, for 2023 is uh, what happens when user generated content becomes user owned content, right? And what, what does that mean for the entire ecosystem, right? Um, <clears throat> I think right now it's an idea, right? And I imagine you guys are exploring businesses that want to make it more than an idea, but what is the value exchange when Zach's tweet has a thousand likes and earns him 10 new followers and also earns him 10, you know, Farcaster tokens. I'll, I'll give a, I'll give a decent, mm -hmm. de decentralized social example. Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you, are you guys exploring specific businesses mm -hmm. around the, the social side of it? Or is that just something that's kind of core to all of the businesses that you are, are bringing into Superlayer? Yes and yes. Um, in that, are we exploring it yet? Typically, it's around creating new platforms mm -hmm. as opposed to plugging into existing platforms. I think it was, I just read a Ben Thompson article uh, yesterday about, um, you know, Twitter shutting off all API access. So, you know, fundamentally, we're not looking for to create platform dependency. Uh, we think that it's pretty greenfield out there and, uh, to be able to create experiences that people want to be a part of 
and that they're attracted to one because it's a great user experience, but and then in addition because they're also being compensated for the value they provide. And you know, maybe one reflection back on 2021, 2022 is I think collectively as an industry we got that backwards. That the focus was great, let's compensate people for the value they provide. And secondarily, let's create a user experience that people want to be a part of. And as a result, the people that stuck around, you know, the the diehards for your product were really the farmers uh, and the speculators, right? The I'm willing to stay here and grind for, you know, take again, not to, to badmouth Axie Infinity because it, I think it provides such an incredible blueprint for for the space. It really took the space a, a leap forward, even even given you know what, what happened. Um, but it rewarded people who played a game for 20 hours a day. I think fundamentally, no one would say that's the user experience that we're trying to create. But that was the economics ex- experience that was rewarded. And so I think we we see the opportunity to to flip that right mm-hmm. to really focus on let's create very compelling user experiences that frankly get away from like grind to earn, and then and then in the back end you're rewarding the what the the behaviors that are best for the experience, not just the behaviors that are best for individual users. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of like you are abstracting the the uh, rewards up to the level of the community writ large, not just the individual. Whereas before, even though the word community was always about with these NFT projects and, you know, DeFi projects, like really everybody was kind of in it for themselves, right? How could I earn the most money? Yeah. I mean, speaking of the uh, the modern godfather of strategy ben thompson um, <laughs> um we love you ben, <laughs> love you, ben. Um, speaking of the godfather modern godfather strategy ben thompson one of the things he always talks about is um how you know the early evolution of the internet was what did the products look like right they were uh you know they were an internet version of a newspaper or a magazine and what did early advertisements look like well they were banner ads because that's what we saw in magazines and 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 newspapers and i think the same is true in web3 in that you the kind of early the initial paradigm we're trying to create is looking very similar to web2 and feeling similar to web2 um but just being monetized a little bit differently and not having that monetization feel too different and i think actually it's almost like it felt too different in 2021, 2022. It's token first. And I think where we're going to go is something that looks, that feels less abrasive and feels more similar. But I think where we want to go and where I'm probably most excited from a super layer standpoint is what are the business, what are the products that are now possible um, and experiences that are now possible as a result of, you know, proven kind of web three business models. And, and I, I'd almost put like, Uber as an example of that, like, you know, it took a lot of things coming together, you know, uh, GPS on your phone, a good enough smartphone, um, unit economics that actually worked, um, you know, with a lot of VC subsidies for, for, (laughs) for Uber to actually work out. Like that was a massive step forward, um, as opposed to just a riff on what the prior, you know, experience was. Yeah, it, 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 the, the the thing that keeps coming to mind is the second order effects of Web3. Yeah. Right. I think it was actually Ben Thompson that had said when, you know, the iPhone first came out, we never knew Uber would exist. That's right. right. We were thinking about apps to draw on, stuff that we would do on a computer, right? We weren't thinking about the way that we would get around being different, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the community and the network. And now, <laughs> I mean, who knows where this is going to go? I was listening to a show today with Tyler Cowan on Bankless. And I mean, first of all, I was surprised he came on. Uh, mm-hmm. If you know Tyler, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's from the older generation. He's a very conservative individual, but always open-minded, right? Um, and they're sitting there talking about, you know, maybe none of the use cases today are the actual use case that Web3 works on, Right. Um, you know, there's, there could be entirely unfounded areas where we simply level the playing field a little bit between the brand and the, and the community or the consumer 
um, that create just a model that we haven't even, like we can't think about right now. And I think that's the beauty of it. I think that's what keeps people like you, people like me here. That's why we, you know, leave this comfortable jobs at, you know, companies that have established businesses because we see that promise and it all starts with that incentive alignment, which creates an incentive for your community, for your individuals to continuously contribute. Um, so what, that kind of begs the question, what is the role of community inside Superlayer? How do you think about it? Uh, is it the first thing that you try to build? What is the first thing that you're doing when you bring you know new companies in? Yeah, uh, at a venture studio, we have a little bit different sense of community. I think there's the broader sense of community uh, from Web3, as we've defined it over the last few years, which I'd say for the most part has been bullshit. Um, and from a super layer standpoint, there's a build community, uh, which is, you know, we're, we're building multiple companies. Um, we also have some JV partners and getting a smaller uh, kind of collective of builders working together, solving similar problems. Like that's a really small, narrow type community that's much more value add. But that's not how like when Web3 talks about community, that's not what we're talking about. The reason I, I, I'd say it's broadly been bullshit is that it was... Community was, I think, roughly was kind of bandied about as the solution, right? Like first, you, you need to have community market fit, then you can have product market fit, right? And, you know, the truth is that like the ma vast majority of those communities looked a lot more like the GameStop subreddit than they did about real like a product community. And actually, I mean, as much as we like to poo-poo these SaaS companies or web, you know, prior web two companies, a what a healthy community looks like is a subset of early users that are actively providing feedback, evangelizing the hell out of your product because they love it. Not because they're there because they think I this is I am maximizing my expected value equation by being here early and hopefully getting in line for the airdrop. Um, and that's where we, again, I think collectively as an industry, we just overly focused on the token piece instead of the product piece and a healthy community, which again, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these, um, NFT groups and, and discords actually are doing it right where they do have an active subset of folks deeply involved into defining the future of where that product's going to go. It's just the exception to the rule rather than the rule itself. Um, so when you ask, like, do we focus on community first? Um, I'd say it actually looks a lot like, you know, the prior iteration of technology. We focus on getting, building product that meets users' needs, getting an early subset of users on there to give us real active and valuable feedback. And, and then you can get to some of the more like community aspects of who's going to help you evangelize it. And that does, given the ownership dynamic, that does look different in Web3. It just, it's the uh, accelerant. It shouldn't be the starting point. Yeah, that's a, it's a very good nuance. I mean, there's, uh, the, the, the narrative was, uh, and, and still is to an extent for a lot of these communities was if you give to the community, then you empower the people. And if it's the people that are a part of the community making decisions, then you're, then the brand's going to be more aligned, right? The logic makes sense, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, the problem is shit doesn't get done. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and no matter what the end product or service is, you've got to have vision, man. You've got to know, you've got to be moving together in one direction, right? And I yeah. think a lot of communities are figuring that out right now. Uh, some of them even getting rid of Discord because you can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. You've got to be very uh, measured in the way that you distribute these contributions, tokens, ownership, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and, and, pro and, and it does not matter if you don't have product market fit. And, and you made a really good point. I mean, with the NFT communities that have survived, which is like, you know, maybe less than 5% of mm -hmm. the communities that were created throughout this whole thing, maybe 1%, um, they are thriving. But that's because they were some of the ones that figured it out right? They figured out that they needed to build a meaningful product or service first, and then have the community align themselves with certain aspects of that. Personally, I recently joined Zen Academy. Um, hmm. And I had not been a part of 
I've been a part of NFT communities, but this community was really about, I mean, this is going to sound stupid, but it was the community was about community, right? It was about mm -hmm. actually finding the interests of the individuals in there and then empowering them to network with each other, to build things, right? And I felt great in there. Now I'm a little partial. I had Zeneca on the show and he kind of, he gave me his, you know, take on this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of it was, what does your community look like when you have a million people in it? And he goes, I'd be removed completely from the community and they wouldn't need me. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is idealistic, but it is simple. And if these new communities are going to survive, I think a lot of it is going to have to be hands off. Right. I, I think that, I mean, I, I trust Seneca far more than my own take on, on these, on these communities. But I also think that um, user number is probably the wrong metric, right? You know, like if it was, it's, it's really about, well, I, I think we've seen it with some of the NFT communities. Like it's a very, very small handful of really passionate people that drive real value. And does it need, you know, is a million people or holders or whatever it is uh, the right metric? Probably not. I think actually what, what, where you're more likely to have success is, um, and I think we've seen it with some of the NFT communities is where there's some sort of real life tie-in, right? Um, you know, I, as a, as a semi-retired golfer, I'm now a parent, uh, the, you know, Link style was certainly one that, that took my imagination and was fun to be, fun to be a part of. And it's just a very clear real life example, like, great. We're going to own and run a golf course. Um, same with Krause House, same with a lot of those, even, you know, Constitution Dow. Um, but you also see that certain communities around a real product mm -hmm. and where it's like, cool, this is an expression. Whereas I'm going to make up an NFT name that now probably exists, like Fuzzy Rhinos. Um, you know, what is the <laughs> purpose of me? Again, sorry to the funny rise, Fuzzy Rhino community, if that exists. Uh, but what is, why are we all here? What, what is the, purpose of this, um, I think that's much harder, right? And so that's why, again, community, community needs to be aligned with people who are passionate about uh, the existence and future existence of whatever you're trying to build. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, I, I would say like my most, like for the longest time I've been engaged in, in these guys, the beans, uh, which hopefully we're launching soon. But from an NFT PFP standpoint, uh, it's been dead fellas. And they're one of the hotter mm -hmm. communities never really like mooned or anything like that. I think it might've gone to like four ETH or something, right? Like we weren't talking like board ape numbers, Azuki or anything like that. But the people who founded the community, Betty and Syke, they're very authentic. They were, they, they're very open about how, what their views are and everything. But the reality is, is that no matter how good they are, and how much people align with their values, they're not gonna survive solely based off NFT royalties. That's right. They've gotta figure out a way to align with brands or create their own brand around their IP such that they can continue to survive. Mm -hmm. And I think it's funny that, and, and I could be over-characterizing this, but it, it seems like a lot of the uh, continuation of survival of these NFT communities is falling on the talent agencies. Because they're, I don't know if they're all following yeah. the board ape CAA model, and and that's why. But you know, UTA is, I think they just signed up Proof too. So mm -hmm. like they're they're falling into these talent agencies, and 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 I don't know the movie industry. I don't know the content side of things. Maybe that's how it's done. Um, but at 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 its very base here, you've got a very active community, and you've got IP, right? how you proliferate that to create a sustainable business. I don't think anybody's figured that out yet. I don't know if you've seen success on that side anywhere, but for me, it's still like, yeah, we did this little partnership with, you know, this brand and we launched this one product and, you know, sign up for whitelist, right? Like um, it's cool, but like, can you do that forever? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the PFP and NFT, to, to run too many acronyms together, um, <laughs> like 
I agree. I think it's incredibly saturated and, and hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that partners like, uh, like UTA and, um, can, can help figure that out, can help some small subset monetize. Um, and, you know, in the end it's, it's UGC, right? It's, it's trying to, okay, cool. Could we build a, an empire around, you know, fuzzy rhinos? Is that compelling? Um, it's just, it, they were being uh, monetized ahead of time. Like it was 90% were going to succeed instead of, you know, the more likely 0.9% that are going to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about like when I, I'm very uh, adamant about sharing my NFTs with my children. Mm. Uh, and I've got, how do you do that? Uh, typically through stickers. Okay. I will make die cut stickers of the uh, NFTs and I put them on my computer uh, my son asked to put him put them on his water bottle, and when I talked to him about it, he's like, "Like, what do you think about NFTs?" He's like, "Crypto beans, you know, stupid butt poopy ass yeah. or something." Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's not sophisticated thoughts, but when he sees them now, he's like, "Dad, there's your dead fella," or he'll go to school and he'll come back with a piece of art and be like, "I drew you a crypto bean," you know, mm-hmm. and I. I don't know what that means in the long term, but I'm certainly happy when he does it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, that's definitely a different, like, bringing those those types of NFT communities to the masses and having it, like, feel more, quote unquote, real life um, is huge for for exposure of those, uh, of those brands. Yeah, a lot of times it's just parties and, and stuff. And I'm, I had a great time. I really enjoyed the parties when I go to them. But, like... What else is there? How are we bringing this back to the families and mm-hmm. stuff like that? I, I think the people that unlock that beyond like the comic book series or something like that, like that will be, that'll be massive. Um, cause there's so much more to IP. You can just create such beautiful narratives. Um, which, which brings up a good point. I, I, a lot of my episodes when I'm talking to people, I mean, as you know, my focus here is all about shifting the perspective of web three. And I, I believe that it is, that's a marketing problem, right? Like that's a narrative driven problem. Um, how does Superlayer view that when with, with their companies, right? How are you going in uh, and helping them shift that perspective and drive narratives? What role does that play? um, in, in the evolution of, of the companies that you help? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a good question because I think it's, we are at this inflection point in web three. And to me, that inflection point looks something like we just stop calling it web three. Like, again, I, this is, um, it, it is reliant on a technology innovation but the tokenization itself is business model innovation. And I think you, know, you would have asked me, I would have said, yeah, this year is the year, maybe it's you know in future years, um, but we're gonna just stop calling it um, you know, Web3 projects, crypto projects. That's just gonna be part of the stack that is integrated into successful projects. And you can think through, Okay, cool. Is this one that's best done tokenized or is this better done with traditional payment rails? Um, is this need to go on? Is there some aspect that needs to go on the blockchain or not? Um, rather than trying to kind of cram usages to validate a technology. And again, I'm, I'm incredibly bullish that the, the use case that Superlayer is focused on, which is the consumer, primarily consumer app, consumer social space is a is really a perfect fit for uh, tokenizing because I think it's the best path to date for how do you redistribute value. The another way to do it, which would have been uh, micro equity, right? Could you right now, you know, equity in a startup? Take our, our Uber example from a while back. Like, and I think this is a Chris Dixon example, but like, um, would there be like, could you give issuances? you know, very extremely granular stock option issuances to users on the platform and drivers and and, and users. No, you can't because it's administratively painful. Um, But that's really a big part of the value that Web3 is trying to provide. But again, it should be an option that you jump, that you opt into. um, And then we're still just talking about the business itself. And it might just be the next 
the, the next great competitor to OnlyFans or to TikTok is leveraging the Web3 business model. But we collectively should be focused on the product itself. And so I think that's, that's where it's going. I love that. I, I often catch myself trying not to frame everything around Web3. <laughs> My show is called yeah. Web3 Me. <laughs> but I do. I mean, it's at the end of the day, you've got uh, a, a new character brand. At the end of the mm -hmm. day, you've got a new OnlyFans. You've got a new Google. You've got, a, you, you've got new products uh, that happen to be possible because of the technology. I've even gone so far as to take a step back and say, all right, if, if, if we stop making Web3 synonymous with everything blockchain crypto, right, and start to take it as the third iteration of the web, then Web3 is maybe blockchain plus AI, right? Yeah. Maybe plus quantum computing, maybe plus 5G, right? Yeah. All these things that are going to make building certain blocks. stuff. Yeah, they're building blocks to build a, a more equitable internet or a more equitable business model that shares the value that's created with its users. Yeah, if we if we riff on that a bit, I think, you know, I was trying to, is it analogous to cloud, right? Where, you know, there's a huge movement, obviously, in going from on-prem to cloud. And so that in its own was, you know, uh, you know, entire VC funds were dedicated to cloud. And now it's more like, well, yeah, cloud, you know, it's a, it's a building block. And so I, I wonder if that's just when there are, um, you know, when there are potentially really important building blocks, they initially start out as kind of the be all and end all until they can be proven well enough to be, just be part of the stack that you're building on top of. Um, and to your point, yeah, whether it's, okay, are we layering, we're combining the, you know, the Web3 primitive, uh, the payment rail, this new payment rail uh, primitive and ownership primitive alongside AI, right? Um, like, yeah, I think that becomes super interesting. And it's probably, it's probably very natural for any new industry hype cycle to get there. But it's like, well, no, we'll, make, well, no, we'll have made it when we're not actually talking about a company incorporating, you know, crypto or Web3, but we're talking about just the company itself. Hmm. You got my wheels turning. I'm sitting here thinking about like how a lot of these story driven kind of creation uh, NFT communities could take the content that is created inside of their discords as they have these different channels where they're creating narratives and stories and all this plug it into a chat GPT, chat four GPT or five, yeah. right? And then actually generate the visuals to go with it through a mid journey or something like that, right? And then you're creating, I mean, there's already tools for this where people are creating entire movies based off a few prompts from an AI. So there is kind of like that leverage of like, hey, there's like 50,000 people in this community. And if they're all contributing to this narrative, I don't know how we're going to reconcile it, but you know what can? AI. Right. Yeah. And then it can also assign ownership based on how much someone actually contributed to the story. Right. It isn't just because they all hold the NFT. It's because that person actually can like they use the narrative that was going through that. That's a little bit off the wall. But I just I mean, I thought it was worth mentioning because it kind of combines the technologies to create a product. Right. And if it's a good enough product, then people will buy it, right? Or they will empathize with it and they will join the community and it will get bigger and what they will produce more products, right? But it does not take away your earlier point, which is that there's still got to be people in there who have some resemblance of an idea how to write, right? <laughs> there's got to be a few leaders in each of these communities or each of these channels that's saying, all right, here's the first paragraph to get you going right? And you're way off task. Here's the, the next paragraph to keep you going. So there's always going to be a balance, right? Of community driven participation and the actual like people who are making it happen, right? The visionaries, the contributors in the space. I'm going to keep sprinting down this rabbit hole with you, which is, you know, I think <laughs> I the it. chat GPT limitation, um, you know, as you and everything is, it comes back down to quality, right? If, if infinite content is possible, then it, then it becomes about, well, how do you discover quality content, right? Like it's all, it commoditizes content as a whole. 
And then it goes back up to, well, who do I, maybe it's about curation. You know, it's the same reason. Do, do I sign up for Disney plus with kids? Yeah. Because yeah. I trust them, you know, that the curation is going to be great. And I wonder if there's some analogy to web three with that, where um, it's a huge analogy to web three with that. Sorry. Right. Where, <laughs> where it becomes not just with NFT communities, but you know, when all of this now becomes possible, it's here, you're looking, especially when we think about it from the social standpoint, like, you know, what, like I'm a, I'm a kind of a Twitter lurker junkie, I'd say I don't post a ton, but I get, you know, a ton of my news and all that from that. And it's because that I can curate a stream that I am very excited about. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what becomes the kind of the, the key limiter um, that defines success, because it's not going to be about the creation of content itself, right? Using the chat GPT example. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's the, the, the big analogy that I interrupted you for is that the big, one of the big promises of this is that everybody can be a creator, right? Mm -hmm. Every single person before AI, everybody could go create their NFT project and they could launch it, right? Uh, using Manifold or whatever tools, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the other side of the coin is that then you have a discoverability curation problem because mm -hmm. if everybody's creating content, what is good content? So yes, I yep. think I think you hit the nail on the head. It's going to come down to how much how we curate this content to reach the next audience. And <laughs> I hate to say it, but it sounds like there's going to be some more middlemen in there <laughs> that are going to have to help with that. Um, you know, hopefully they share the value that they create a little bit more with the community. Well, <laughs> maybe I'll try. I'll bring that back to the Web three theme, which is. If it's about curation, it, we then start to lean more on individuals rather than brands as a whole. And what Web3 enables is individuals to better monetize that value that they provide, right? Um, whereas before, it was entirely in the hands of the, the platform. That's what that, those are who could monetize it. Um, whereas, you know, ownership of your content and capability is what the Web3 promises. So, assuming we go that we do go down that angle, it's going to, I think, enable individuals even more. And now they ideally have a better path to monetize that value than they did. I love that. We're nearing the top of the hour, Gary. This has been a lot of fun. A, wi a wild ride. <laughs> wild ride. Um, I have my two traditional closing questions, which are the first one is, how do you describe Web3? I think I, I hinted at it before, but it's the, to me, Web3 is the redistribution of value from platforms to users. And again, that's because Superlayer is very focused on consumer. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, the final one's forward looking, and that is where do you see yourself in the space in the next six to 12 months? And where do you see yourself in the space in the next five to 10 years? And please be as audacious as you want. <laughs> six to 12 months, I'd love us to, on the Superlayer side, uh, have our hands in working with incredible co-founders to build the proof points that people look to and say, that's, that's how Web3 works. That's how we've kind of gone beyond the prior Ponzi-nomics that, that plagued the earlier projects. And to, to be able to say, wow, there actually has been a real shift from kind of the early innovators in that space to uh, you know proven products where the monetization angle works. Like to me, that would be that would be the ideal in, in six to 12 months. Um, and I think we've got some early contenders uh, for, for getting there, but that, that would be, that would definitely be the win. Um, Cause you know, on web three still dealing with a, um, you know, a, a brand, I, you know, brand issue right now. It obviously it took a pretty big hit um, with all of these shenanigans at the end of 2022. Um, so to be able to demonstrate real proof points of value will, will certainly elevate it. Um, Five to 10 years. I mean, five to 10 years, I would, it, it would be the extension of what six to 12 months looks like, which is we look back and even though we're no longer talking about the web three industry or the crypto industry, we talk about what were the building blocks that made that possible. And, um, and I think this is when we're, you know, when we're, bringing in new folks to Superlayer, whether it's co-founders in our projects or people on the Superlayer team, it's really like, do you want to go build this industry? Like it is, it is wild, wild west right now. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing that is in cement. Everything's in sand. 
Um, and we really have that. Everyone has that opportunity to go build it. So five to 10 years from now, looking back and saying, yes, those bricks that we built helped launch an entire industry and bring it from kind of concept with a dream to, you know, full fledged, you know, industries. That's awesome, man. It's a great way to leave it. And I uh, appreciate you coming on, Gary. It's been, it's been fun. Again, it's been, a, it's been a while. I love that we can go also. And, you know, it seems like every, uh, <laughs> every VC who was web three is now an AI. So I'm glad we got to tie in that angle as well. Uh, <laughs> bring it full circle. Thanks for tuning in to web three with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.